What is up, kangaroo chasers, and welcome to another episode of Chasing Kangaroos. What a couple of weeks it's been. What a fucking roller coaster ride it has been if you're an international rugby league fan. World Cup on, postponed, on, postponed. Nations not coming, they're coming, they're not coming. You know, Indigenous and Maori na- nations are coming. It's been crazy. Um, but there is, I guess, a decision now or a final word has been said. And it's on in 2022. It has been postponed. And uh, for me, a little bit of weight off my shoulders, I suppose, because a decision's made and we now look forward. I've kind of, won't say relieved is the word, but, you know, I'm excited by the next 12 months leading into this World Cup now. And um, I'm just hoping now we put all the negativity behind us and, and move forward. And had a wonderful chat, just got off the phone with the independent chair of International Rugby League, Troy Grant. And uh, what a timely conversation. Once it was postponed, uh, Troy wanted to speak to us, the International Rugby League fans, about the postponement itself, the World Cup, but also about the future of International Rugby League. And we had a great conversation. I know if you're a long-time listener of the show or even a new listener of the show, welcome. Uh, You're going to love this one. Um, Yeah, plenty of good stuff in there. I tried to ask him as many questions as possible thank you to those who reached out on the socials facebook instagram at chasing ruse uh, or twitter at chasing ruse pod uh, thanks for reaching out with your questions i tried to sneak them in you know with me i don't uh with my interviews i try and i don't have a list of questions that i ask but i do try and know what i want to talk about and 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 just let the conversation flow and you're going to enjoy it guys that's all i'm going to say um Thank you, of course, to Maddie Haynes, our sponsor for this season on Chasing Kangaroos, matthaynesport.com.au. If you need a logo designed, a jersey designed, if you're an international team, club, if, you're a, if you've got a, a group of, of guys and girls that play Oztag and you need some jerseys designed, have a chat to Matt Haynes, matthaynesport.com.au. Tell him you're a kangaroo chaser and if you're getting your jerseys produced, you'll get 10% off. Speaking of discounts, Lockdown15 is your 15% discount code at chasingruse.com. It's your place uh, for international merchandise. And, uh, you know, we've got some couple of Brazilian jerseys left. We've got some new Puerto Rico kit. We've got some new Philippines kit. We've got some cool Japan stuff. We've got, we've got stuff from everywhere, guys. I'm not going to list it all because we'll be here all day. But uh, it is the shop for international rugby league fans, chasingruse.com. And that Lockdown15 discount code... Uh, we'll give you 15% off at the shop for as long as Sydney is in lockdown. And it could be a while, guys. Uh, it's not great, but uh, you get that 15% off. So take advantage. Uh, guys, enough advertising from me. This chat with uh, Troy Grant needs to be heard. I'm Michael Carboni. This is episode 124 of the Chasing Kangaroos podcast.
All right, Kangaroo Chasers, it's been a massive few weeks. The World Cup on again, off again, on again, off again, postponed, not postponed officially. And we've got a big treat for you tonight. Um, massive chat with the independent chair of International Rugby League. It's a great pleasure to have you on the pod, mate. Troy Grant, welcome to Chasing Kangaroos. Thank you, Michael, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to have a, a chat. And uh, absolutely happy to answer any questions uh, about our wonderful game of rugby league and more particularly on the international stage. Well, mate, I'm glad to hear that because I've got a lot to talk to you about, mate, where there's plenty to talk about at the moment, whether it be, um, obviously it's going to be, you know, plenty around the, the World Cup postponement, but I really want to talk about the future um, for International Rugby League in particular, and I know it's something that all of our fans are interested in. We did um, go to the socials for questions, and we got, it, we got heaps, and I've consolidated those, and, mate, where do we begin is the big question, and... Um, I suppose where I do want to start is probably about six months ago. I want to start with a true or false question. So, mate, true or false, uh, did Andrew Abdo warn Rugby League organisers six months ago that the, the Australians were unlikely to participate in the World Cup? Uh, the Australian Rugby League uh, have had concerns regarding um, the World Cup just because of the COVID pandemic. Yep. And they raised a number of those concerns about the arrangements for uh, biosecurity in the UK. Uh, the timing of the six months came about when John Dutton issued a, a three-tiered approach to potentially dealing with the World Cup in case of the UK's inability to host the Cup because of the pandemic. And that was uh, you know, a gold, silver, bronze type of arrangement. So uh, gold was go-ahead, full crowds, etc. cetera. Um, the silver was... Uh, a reduced tournament, potential teams, no crowds, etc., and and then a uh, reduced number of um, time frame for the tournament, and, and obviously postponement was um, the least preferred, but it was a third option. And uh, yeah, the Kangaroos at that stage um, wrote to uh, the Rugby League World Cup and outlined what their concerns were, and from that time up until the announcement, I think everyone was um, pretty confident that they were heading in the right direction. Uh, and a participation agreement was being signed and plenty of work was being done behind the scenes to meet the requirements of biosecurity and then uh, the pandemic. And uh, ultimately, just before the um, announcement, um, obviously the commission had met and made a decision on their own advice that what had been put in place, which everyone thought was adequate, wasn't going to be adequate under Australian workplace law. And they made the decision they did and, and a couple of weeks ago, it's, uh, as you say, it's been a pretty hectic couple of weeks and, yeah. and a lot of conversation about that. So were you shocked to, to see the Aussies and the Kiwis pulling out? I mean, by the time we got to that point um, and, and John and the team announced that the World Cup was going ahead and we remember it well a couple of weeks ago, some have described that moment as a little bit of a poker game where, you know, the, the, the World Cup organisers were perhaps trying to force a decision um, because, you know, the, the kangaroos or the ARLC kept sort of pushing back, pushing back. But were you shocked? Did you feel that the biosecurity laws in place and everything that was sort of being prepared in the last, I guess, 12 months in particular was adequate? And, and were you shocked that the pullouts occurred? Yeah, look, as I said at the time, and this is true, that I understand uh, everyone's perspective. The IRL, in the way that we... Um, have run the, the organisation, what's been historically run, contracts out, for want of a better term, um, the responsibility, the coordination, the organisation of our 
marquee event being the World Cup. So the the, World, the IRL becomes a little bit distance from that and um, that role really is taken over, in this case, by the World Cup 21. We get updates and information. We get assurances from both sides, but we'll be in the middle. We're obviously looking after our asset being the World Cup what's agreed in staging agreements and contractual arrangements, but also looking after the interests of our member nations. So we're, we, got, we get put into a difficult position with that sort of arrangement. We don't have the, the buy-in, I think, is the lesson we need to learn. So uh, were we shocked that there were concerns? No, uh, Greg Peters from New Zealand really had been raising them. He was probably the most vocal for the longest period of time. Um, just making sure the World Cup were aware of the enormous difficulties, um, more so about repatriation yep. um, on their return back uh, was the major concerns. But again, New Zealand signed their uh, participation agreement uh, that was conditional. And uh, so once that happened and, and the announcement was made by John Dutton, I think you know the ARL sincerely were very close to signing and were satisfied with the arrangements that obviously the, the Delta variant had hit New South Wales and consequently Victoria and Queensland in recent weeks. And I think that just changed the entire yeah. landscape. And and from that moment on, uh, everything became extremely difficult. And, um, you know, they've been under enormous pressure, uh, the NRL competition side of things. So I guess um, at the end of the day, um, they've made the decision which is well known which has disappointed and upset a lot of people. But there's the landscape's very different from where we started the conversations about the participation agreements to where it got to as well. Yeah. And I think the frustration is that they weren't signed earlier, um, but I'm not sure ultimately given the circumstances with Delta, if the ultimate decision wouldn't have been different. So, But we'll never know and we are where we are. We've got to deal with it and we've just got to move forward and, and uh, learn more importantly than anything else, learn lessons from it. Yeah, it's interesting, and you don't have to comment on this, this mate, but the I, I understand both sides of the story. I understand where ARLC, NRL, etc., NZRL are coming from. I understand where the IRL World Cup are coming from, um, but I just feel like the arrogance from some within the NRL was sort of uncalled for. Uh, Peter Volandi's made some comments about, you know, we're not, we're not um, uh, convicts anymore and blah, 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 and it's kind of like, well... You know, that's not where we need to get to. Um, but anyway, I'll leave that alone. Mate, um, I want to talk about, um, I guess, some of the hypotheticals, right? And, you know, there was talk about a contingency plan early on. So, And when I say early on, I mean a couple of weeks ago. So Kiwis and Aussies pull out and there's talk of, okay, we, we get two teams to replace them in the men's, we get two teams to replace in the women's and a wheelchair side to replace the, the Wheelaroos. Are you able to shed any light on you know, who, what those contingency plans might have been? Yeah, well, there wasn't any decision about them, but the, all the options are on the table, which were um, the two teams that were next in qualification process uh, could come in in, in all tournaments Yep. Uh, because obviously we run the three World Cups, so who were next team up um, was uh, certainly one of the options. Uh, the second option was the Indigenous Australian team and the New Zealand Maori team. Uh, they were both very real options and uh, they were being canvassed, budgeted for and, and considered. Um, whether they ultimately would have been accepted or not would have been 
had it for the board in consultation with World Cup 21. Um, the, the easiest way to explain this is that, yeah, we're a, a sporting federation. Uh, one perspective is that we look after our member nations um, and put the new next so ready and able to. Yep. Uh, and that, that would have been the easiest decision, I guess, um, in that regard. Second consideration, uh, which John Dutton spoke a lot about, was um, you know player voice, player choice. It was a choice that the players felt had been taken away from them. So to have a team from Australia and New Zealand, or not not being the kangaroos and kiwis, jillaroos and the kiwi ferns as examples, um, to replace them with that potentially would have made those teams, but in different invitational sides, would have been honouring the qualification that had been made from the nations, mm. would have certainly assisted commercially with broadcast arrangements. Um, so that would have been in part of the decision-making process for the IRO or board, so that, uh, which we didn't. So uh, we didn't initiate uh, those conversations. Uh, they were initiated by the players themselves, uh, who I understand made approaches to uh, the ARL and were canvassing. Uh, they asked the question, would it be possible? Uh, there was precedence, New Zealand Maori. Yeah, participated in the 2000 World Cup. So, yes, there was precedence there. And, again, ultimately would have come down to a decision about um, what would have been in the best interest of the tournament itself. Uh, and, ultimately, you know, the success of the tournament uh, is about nations having opportunity to participate at that level, commercial revenue that we could raise from that as an IRL that could be then reinvested back into the game. So, a hell of a lot to consider, but ultimately no decisions were made on that front. The players speaking to the ARLC, was that on an individual basis or was it more via Clinton Newton and the and the um, RLPA? Uh, from, uh, definitely through the RLPA. Um, I, I think there was a number of kangaroos that came out in the Australian media yep. and certainly expressed their desire and um, not only kangaroo players, but uh, Jason Tomalo from... Tonga was also in the public domain, as I saw. Um, but I know the, the Indigenous boys went as a collective um, to to the um, governing body, so um, wasn't privy or part of those discussions, but uh, that was certainly being thought through and and uh, absolutely was a, a potential uh, option. Uh, but ultimately, the uh, inability for other nations to field or guarantee the fielding of enough players couple of other countries with some emerging and growing travel difficulties that the pandemic was uh, impacting on them ultimately made it uh, unviable. So the decision, sad and disappointing decision was made, but in a, in a great sense, you know, a cancellation of the tournament would have been devastating, whereas this postponement, you know, there, there is some positives out of it that we do uh, have a little bit more time, I guess, and, yep. and we can um, certainly learn the lessons and make sure those potential contingencies, whatever they may be, uh, are addressed and we're ready to go if anything pops up at us uh, in the future. Great. I will get to some of those positives because I think there will be some. Uh, but I, I want to ask as well, you know, during the two weeks, the first week in particular was very much will other nations pull out? And as the week continued, it looked like more of the nations were sort of solid, you know, you, especially Pacific nations and you mentioned Indigenous and Maori talk. And it looked very promising in that first week, I think, that the tournament could continue um, without 
the ARLC and, and, and ZRL's blessing. But then things started to change and there was a number of sort of situations, I guess. So I guess a COVID situation happened, worsened over here and there was a day of delays for the NRL. Uh, NRLW uh, was postponed and, and whilst it's great that that competition is going ahead this year, it was going to be during the same time that the World Cup was going to be. Uh, there was just a number of things that happened in the second week. Was there, any, was there a final straw where it was kind of like, well, okay, we definitely need to postpone now? Or was it was it a mixture of things? Yeah, no, look, I think it was more of a combination yeah. uh, of factors. Um, you know, I met with John with the NRL club CEOs, um, or representatives of the CEO group, talked through some of the issues and, and understood their position clearly. Uh, I had a hookup with the Asia-Pacific board, uh, spoke with them. Obviously, I was in daily contact with um, John Dutton uh, from Rugby League World Cup and uh, Andrew Hill, uh, who did a, a lot of work with uh, Jeremy Edwards on the ground yep. talking to uh, nations and players. So, no, the nations were were solid um, and remain so and very steadfastly because the, the World Cup for the, the smaller nations is absolutely without doubt a crucial factor for them to maintain sponsorship, relevance in their country, government funding, a whole raft of, of issues. Um, so their commitment to the, the tournament, I don't think, ever wavered until the point where they potentially, because of things outside of their control, yeah. uh, were not able to field their squads. So I think um, you know they, they, with courtesy, advised the World Cup that that may be where the trend was going and that all factored into the decision. But no, they were, they were solid throughout, and uh, which gives us great confidence uh, going forward. It's just a, a matter of ultimately we are dealing with a pandemic and the reality of the situation, the way that it's managed in the Northern Hemisphere the way it's been managed in the Southern Hemisphere, it, it's worlds apart. It, it's just a completely and utterly different mindset. It's completely different um, scales that we're dealing with. Um, you know, we locked down in where I live in Queensland after three cases. Yeah. Um, yeah that would be unheard of in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and I'm not, you know, in favour of one option or the other. The governments are, are doing the best for their communities as they as they see within their resources and, and, and how they're governing. It's just that they are polar opposites on how it's been managed. So the comprehension um, of the number of cases uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, when you're looking at it from a Southern Hemisphere perspective, just sort of blows your mind. Yeah. Um, when we get locked down after three cases, which quickly escalate, yet there's, you know, tens of thousands of cases. But then because of the great work of the vaccination programs, et cetera, the um, deaths and the, the hospitalizations and all that in percentage is way down. Yeah. Um, because that's work. And then, you know, we've had some challenges here with our vaccination rates, which, you know, changes the metrics and the way that nations and governments um, manage the pandemic. So there's nothing we can do about that as the IRL. There's nothing that the World Cup 21 could do. Um, you know, the Prime Minister of Australia and the UK, both um, great supporters of the World Cup, both great rugby league supporters, had the conversation, both obviously supportive of the World Cup proceeding, if, if it could and if it remained viable. And um, ultimately it came down to it wasn't um, at that point where the board made the decision from World Cup 21, and we understand that, and now we just uh, need to move forward and and put on the very best World Cup we've ever had, which is the ultimate aim in 21, and and that's what we'll deliver in 22. And the thing as well is, Troy, 
COVID is not going anywhere. I'm not an expert, but that it doesn't seem to be going anywhere for the time being. So who's to say in 12 months' time things aren't different? Like, do we have assurances from the the Australians and the Kiwis that they're not going to do this again next year? Well, the, the, I, again, uh, being the, the middle guy in the negotiations, I just uh, I'm relying on John Dutton's advice, and he's very optimistic that the um, progress with the Australian Rugby League is um, very positive and moving quickly in the right direction to getting that participation agreement signed early and and having all those contingency plans in place by security wise. Because you're right, we don't know what the next twelve months are going to bring. 18 months ago, we or two years ago, we certainly didn't know what we'd be facing today. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess that's where one of the advantages is that we will have a lot more knowledge. Um, that there's that additional time to make sure that people do have comfort with the arrangements that are in place. And I think that's where the Olympics prospered after their postponement. There was still a lot of um, concern in in Japan itself about the the games going up on from a local population perspective, but I think we've all seen the Olympics have been a, a triumph in very trying circumstances. Yeah. And, and whatever gets thrown at us, I, I think we'll be better equipped. And, you know, I've only been in the chair's role for, I don't know, something like 14 weeks or something. So, you know, I came into um, this arrangement well after the World Cup was planned, awarded, and all the arrangements were in place and, and uh, only on the board for 18 months. So... In total, so you know that my knowledge and relationships and partnerships with everybody are in their infancy as well, and hopefully within the next twelve months, those will be a lot better, and I can um, hopefully help mend any relationships that need mending, and uh, make sure that everyone's there. And the commentary coming out of um, you know, coaches and clubs uh, for next year is far different to this year already. Um, and now they're on that record of saying that, that that would be the expectation in good faith that they will, you know, do what we need them to do and contribute to a successful rugby league World Cup. It's good to hear. It does show how important it is to a lot of the players, you know, 80, 80, 80 or 85% of those surveyed most recently wanted to play. A number of coaches came out in favour. Um, I think from a from a media perspective, I, I joke around offline, and I may have mentioned it on the pod last week, that... Most NRL fans didn't even know there was a World Cup on this year, and now they do, or they know it's next year anyway. So maybe there's a little positive there. Um, I wanted to ask, final question, I guess, on this sort of thing. Um, Kangaroos, Gillaroos, Wheelaroos, Kiwis and Kiwi Ferns, can we expect any sanctions or penalties, or are they going to sort of get away with this one? Well, it's you've got to ask what they've actually done wrong in relation to um, rules or breaching uh, contracts. So the, the Kangaroos didn't, or the Australian Rugby League didn't sign a participation agreement, so they haven't breached one. Um, New Zealand was, was conditional up to the 31st of July, so they've exercised um, their agreement as per the conditions not being met. And there's going to be forever debate about um, the way that was done and the impact it's had and all that sort of stuff. But you know, we're a, a world sporting um, federation with rules and, and articles of association and all that sort of stuff. So um, what they've actually done, you know, probably they haven't committed any crimes or things to be sanctioned for, but I, I guess the, the commentary has been more about uh, how they've done it uh, is what I've seen. 
Um, and, and that's probably more uh, about us looking at how do we stop that from happening in the future or put those better contingencies or protections in for the governing body and the actual tournament itself. Um, so that's something for the board when a complaint um, would come in, a formal complaint, which we haven't received. And at the end of the day, the, the World Cup 21 committee want to work with both those nations for 22. So any sanctions, um, you know, are they counterproductive? They are responsible for the competition that um, supplies, as you've said earlier, a significant body of the players. Um, there's all those factors that you would, as a responsible governing organisation, need to take into consideration. Uh, the emotion I can understand is pretty raw still and is out there, but, um, you know, as a governing body, we've got to look at things through a, a independent lens and, and, and make sure that we're um, following our own rules and, and conduct ourselves appropriately in regards to any of those potential um, sanctions or anything else that may be raised in that regard. You're right about the anger. I've heard some fans say we should ban them for three World Cups. I don't think that's going to do anyone any favours, really, but um, it, it's interesting. Yeah, it's well, a... what, does that, what does that really achieve? <laughs> I, I, I'm not really sure. And Look, we're, we're in a place in International Rugby League. The, the Federation's been around since 1927. So as a, an independent, look, I've been a football lover my entire life. My, my whole family um, have played for generations. My great-grandfather played the game in the Hunter. Oh, well. Wow. Uh, in 1912, um, you know, two years after the competition started in, in the Hunter, after Newcastle was uh, in the original 1908 New South Wales Rugby League comp for two years. Um, he, his son, my grandfather, played. Uh, my father played schoolboys um, rugby league and, and I played myself and refereed and administered the game. So for me, I, I get it. And, you know, I used to get up as a kid in the early hours back on the ABC and tune in at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to watch <laughs> a touring side play yep. and back in the in the early 70s and in the 80s and the great Invincibles tours and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I've been a lover of um, international rugby league since I was a kid. Um, so I get the passion. I, I absolutely do. And that's why when I was asked to um, put my hand up for this role, I, I jumped at it. You know, it was uh, – I feel enormously privileged to, to have the opportunity to make a contribution We've been around, as I said before, since 1927. Um, the Cricket World Cup for the ICC was 1987. The first Rugby World Cup was 1987. Yeah. Ours was in 54 mm -hmm. uh, in France. Um, what have we been doing as a code? Like, why are they so far advanced commercially and you know, able to operate on a far greater level to reinvest in other countries? The reality is we're not a lot different from rugby in the amount of countries that are at similar competitive levels, yep. if that makes sense. And I think we've got a, a bigger range of nations playing rugby league than we have at Rugby World Cup. Sure, some of it is amateur or community level, but, you know, that's how it all started in New South Wales too. Exactly. It might have been yeah. professional, but there was a couple of guys um, at, a, at a pub, had a meeting, put their hand in their own pocket and funded the start of the New South Wales Rugby League competition, and which is now the NRL. You know, I, I know across the international rugby league community, that's happening in nations all over the world. A lot, lot of them are, are expats of strong rugby league nations um, and all still reside in Australia. But a lot of people are doing what they did in the formative days of the, of the uh, NRL, is they're funding out of their own pocket um, the development of the game and startup of competitions and 
I'm just in awe of those of those people who make that contribution. I'm so grateful for it. Um, so we, we've got to try and bring all that together on an international footing because our remit is to help that those nations develop from the ground up, but also operate at the elite level and a very commercial level to raise the money to reinvest in the game. So it's a big charter we have, and we've just got to get better at doing it. And I think in the recent governance changes in the last two years, we've moved away from a committee model, for whatever a better yeah. word, a, a committee of member nations, to actually a board that's going to operate like a company with better disciplines, better governance, which just were non-existent even as I came on as an independent um, board member. We didn't have an audit and risk committee. We didn't have a, a proper strategy committee and we, um, we, had all, we were just operating like a committee rather than a board. So we've gone some big internal changes. Uh, our communications have been really poor. When I sat down with some of the uh, clubs, when I first became a director to introduce myself and hear from them um, what they thought about International Rugby League because we're so reliant on them as to how we could have a better relationship. And they said, it's the first time anyone's ever spoken to them from the IRL. <laughs> well, Which is, I was staggered. Yep. I was honestly staggered. So, you know, we've, we've had COVID too, the... The three independent directors, we came onto the board in late January 2020 and uh, by March we had COVID. So we've operated for the majority of our tenure in a pandemic. So we haven't been able to um, do everything we would have liked to help get us even further down the track. But we've done what we can in those restricted circumstances and I'm confident that we're getting better at our internal uh, management arrangements, and uh, I've made it a priority as chairman to pick up the communications with our member nations and make myself more readily available to hear what their needs are so we, I can deliver them, um, essentially, and that's what our body's responsible for. So uh, making some steps, but we, you know, we've got a hell of a long way to go. Troy, you've said so much there. I don't even know where to start unpacking. Uh, so many. The big thing there is communication. I'm glad you mentioned that, and I think more and more nations um, want to be want to hear from you guys and understand what's going on. And there are nations that reach, oh, people from nations that reach out to me, wondering what's going on. And and you know things are getting better. Um, I'm I'm sure, and I can hear that. So that's that's excellent. I hope you weren't um you weren't expecting a cushy ride, mate. You came in at at <laughs> an interesting time for sure. And uh, it, it's just timing, you know. We, here we were, Tonga's there, ready to take over the world in terms of rugby league and sport. And um, we're ready for the best World Cup of all time. And then COVID happened and you can't time it any worse. But one of the other things that I do want to sort of point out is you talk about those early days in New South Wales Rugby League when, you know, it was an amateur game and we're just sort of um, converting rugby union players and, and introducing them to this new sport, which looked very similar to rugby union back then as well, I should add. But you look at yeah. the likes of Brazil and what the women are doing there. You look at the domestic league in Greece and you look at, you know, the domestic league in Jamaica and there's, there's a lot of similarities, you know, and, and it's interesting to see and it's actually wonderful to watch what's going on there and it's like stepping back in time as an Aussie rugby league fan and seeing how it was done and maybe it's being done a little bit better and it's maybe a little bit harder though. Um, not many Aussie fans sort of appreciate that or understand that. And I think when it, it would have been in this World Cup, what I was most excited for was, you know, um, Aussie fans, Kiwi fans and even British fans to a degree hearing some of the Jamaican accents or hearing some of the the Brazilian accents and things like that and going, oh, wow, like they they actually play rugby league in Brazil? Like that's crazy. Yeah. 
because it would have shocked well, a lot of people. The work um, Robert Bergen's done down there is extraordinary. Hundred. Yep. Uh, what's been done with the Italian team? Yeah. Uh, Rosario has been awesome. Uh, you know, I get phone calls uh, from people who are just putting their heart and soul into this uh, North uh, Macedonia. Um, contacted me the other day, and yep. I'm looking to to step up as well. And, so good. You know, yeah, it's awesome. Um, Benny Howard over in Vanuatu, and like, there's just individuals throughout the world who are just doing enormous things. You know, the USA's one of those. It's uh, hard to explain the United States. It's just it reflects the IRL a little bit that it's <laughs> it's just reeked in so much potential, but just hasn't quite been realised. The the right structure or the right arrangements hasn't quite been realised there, and some brilliant people there have done fantastic stuff at the amateur level. Can we talk yeah. about that a little bit, Troy? Because there was a question yeah, that came yeah. in on Twitter about the US, and it prob- I didn't know if it would be appropriate, but you've mentioned it. There's a lot going on there in terms of NARL, USARL, California Rugby League. There's plenty happening, and not everyone gets along, which seems to happen in quite a fair bit in Rugby League. But Welcome to Rugby League. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I say. But what's your understanding of it, and is there anything the IRL's doing or able to do to sort of try and clean things up in that that area yeah look um the moment the um narl um was announced uh we immediately reached out uh to when i say both parties because they they are two separate organizations to get a proper understanding and and make ourselves available to help the, the the game prosper there um you know continue to do what's been great at the uh, community or the amateur level through the USARL. Um, so many acronyms, I've got to try and remember them all. <laughs> um, but also make sure that there was, because they're the member nation, they're the member body of the yep. IRL. So yep. you know, we'll look after them as our members, obviously. But we welcome uh, professional leagues um, being created. But they, like they exist in Australia, they have to um, be linked. There has to be a pathway that they can't operate as separate entities. So yeah, we, we've had meetings uh, with both, and there's a, there's a little bit of internal stuff that the USARL need to sort out themselves. Yep. Um, which will only I uh, help advance any other future professional relationships as well. Because uh, I guess there's a, some terrific people there. I just think just need to be a little bit more unified, and which will only help unify into the professional stuff as well. There's not an op- a level of opposition yep. or anything like that from the USARL there very happy to work with a professional league. It's just a matter of making the two sync. Um, but, you know, we need to get some more unity in that pursuit and just keep the conversations happening. And, uh, yeah, so we're actively involved in that space because, you know, I said when I came in as chair that, you know, France was my number one priority um, as we've started off now and it's going really well to well, – hopefully it's still going well to um, yep. have the World Cup in France in 25. But yep. You know, I think the next frontier or the next vision we need to have is North America in 29, and we're going to need these eight or well, now seven years of um, leading time to make sure that that's sustainable and the investment's um, good because we don't want to go to a what we call a frontier area or a new, new area as such uh, where the sport is largely not known without an established competition operating as best it can so it can leverage off the success of that tournament and continue to grow and build. That's what a strategy is all about. You, you just don't, I think, pre- as we have done previously, pick a, 
a nation out of the hat and say, oh, let's go and play a World Cup there without a participation plan attached, without yeah. a comm plan attached. And that's what used to happen. Yeah. It was just the event was on for a few weeks. It had come, blow in the town, blow out of town, make not that much money and um, crack on again in four more years. So it has to be a lot more discipline and forethought about those decisions into the future. And what Luke Lacoste has put together for France uh, you know, such a short time is just amazing. Um, so I I'm, couldn't be any more grateful to uh, Luke and his team over there. Um, but again, that's what our job is to help initiate that, set the guidance and then support the member nations uh, with us um, more actively involved in these arrangements uh, than we ever have been before to make sure they're a success and they're a success for the broader game of rugby league because the investment's smart, the participation arrangements are in place and Something we haven't done that well, which is the, I think the biggest gripe of members, is provide them with the technical support for coaching and rules and all that sort of stuff to help grow their game domestically. And I think that's an area we're working very hard on, but that's what we can finance better and more easily once we have um, greater cash capacity and resourcing capacity to, to support our members. Tell me more about France 2025. How close are we to actually announcing that? And um, was it was it IRL that approached France or Luc Lacoste and, and the French um, 13 yeah, that no, approached was, IRL? Yeah, no, it was me. Um, <laughs> nice, good work. Yeah, no, it was just, just me. So I came out of the board meeting we had in Perth in February 2020 and there was just no host and there was a target date of August 2020 to announce the, the 25 host. And uh, I, I took note of it, so I just used... Immediately after um, Perth, I used that time to get around and, and talk to a number of nations through my uh, connections when I was in politics in Parliament through the Consul General call. And um, and when I first met the, the Rabbitohs, I went around to a lot of the clubs and yep. CEOs, but when I met the Rabbitohs with Blake Solly, Shane Richardson and uh, Wayne Bennett, um, three of them who have all had experience uh, in the Northern Hemisphere said one of your priorities has to be France. You've got to rebuild France to make sure that England have, um, you know, another strong nation up there that France can then help other nations in Europe and and uh, the British can help other nations in, um, in, in the UK grow to rise the competition levels there, similar to what's happened in the Pacific. Uh, so I took that to heart. So I organised a meeting with the French Consul General in Australia, asked Wayne Bennett to go with me, and he did. And we made a pitch, and I, I thought about what would be the pitch. Uh, the World Cup for rugby there in 23, the Olympics are in Paris 24. So said, so let's have a trifecta of world oh, events and have the Rugby League World Cup there in 25. And uh, the Anne Bullion, the French Consul General, uh, Roosters fan, which is helpful. Of course. Um, <laughs> and obviously why she's a Roosters fan. Um, she's been great, given us some guidance. So um, I sort of didn't want to overstep my mark either, but as we went through the, the COVID year, nothing was done in the former management of the IRL about it. August came and went, and I said, well, this is ridiculous. So I um, took a pro- proposition to the board to, about France and why France, and uh, they supported me, so you know, reached out to obviously the, the French uh, Thirteen Federation, and because um, it's you know we can't do this just on our own, the member nation has to be involved. And Luke Lacoste, and he had was fairly recent as well in the chair, yeah. has great sense himself, and 
is already doing a stellar job. So, yeah, he, he just picked it up and he's picked up the ball and run with it. And every bit of success we've had since has been all Luke. Um, my concept, but his work. And uh, so we're hoping for an indication from the French government in around about October uh, as to about their appetite and willingness and interest in hosting the World Cup and um, in 25. So, you know, fingers crossed, toes crossed, everything crossed, um, because I just think on the back of 22, uh, France 25 could be amazing. Uh, it's going to move into four World Cups uh, there. It'll have a youth component as well. Oh, wow. Uh, which is, you know, what I'm talking about, having a participation pathway strategy uh, and obviously physical disabilities will also um, be included. But, yeah, four major World Cups um, while we get the physical disability one up, getting that strengthened as well, uh, where it's accessible to everybody uh, and that's really appealing to the French government. And, yeah, we'll be working, working our guts out to try and pull that off, but... Uh, we've got the right man in Luke Lacoste to, to lead that charge and we're uh, right beside him in that effort. Luke's incredible. I actually interviewed him and a few days later you guys made the announcement that France 2025 was likely and when I interviewed him, it was actually, I wish I wish I waited a few days because I didn't know that announcement was coming and we sort of yeah. guessed and made a few comments about, you know, 2025 or 2029, and he said, oh, Michael, I can't tell you yet. And now I know who's to blame, Troy, so thank you very much, mate. <laughs> but no, that's okay, that's great. And look, it is exciting. Do, do you think, I mean, obviously government participation is important uh, from a French perspective, as it was with a UK perspective. Are you afraid, in a way, that the French government might see what's just happened now with 2021 and, and hesitate a little bit, or do you think that should be clear by then? Yeah, look, I, I certainly, um, I'm, a, I'm a realist that what happened certainly wouldn't be helpful. Yeah. Um, but I'm absolutely hopeful that uh, it hasn't damaged our efforts because that would be a, a tragedy yep. in all sense of the word. But um, look, Luke's just a, a massive operator. You know, we've communicated um, back into the French government and this isn't, this is the most unusual circumstances we've had since 1919, to be honest. That's yeah. since the Spanish flu. Like, this is a global pandemic. Yeah. And the postponement of the Olympics occurred, the postponement of Euros occurred. So it's not without precedence what's happened for rugby league. So it's happened and very successful events have been run thereafter. But again, it just comes back down to what I think everyone's most annoyed about or where the anger is, is the perception or of how it was done more than yeah. the ultimate decision and, and how it's played out certainly hasn't been helpful for our, our reputation globally. Um, so, um, yeah, we'd, only time will tell, mate, but we certainly will do everything to um, hopefully convince the French government we're a good investment um, for them as well as uh, a wonderful opportunity to exact do what we said originally was give them a, a trifecta of world events and and run a, an extraordinarily successful World Cup in 25. I'm already saving up for it, mate, so make it happen. Um, <laughs> what what are, a, lot of, a lot of questions about going back to 2021 now, a lot of questions about profitability uh, effect, affected because of postponement and, and mainly around, you know, cash flow for International Rugby League because obviously the IRL, the, the IRL's biggest event is the World Cup and the World Cup, you know, this World Cup certainly would have gone a long way to fund the next four years of activity for the member nations, is there an effect in in stalling things for a year? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, there's you know, not going to uh, sugarcoat it. We're 
we were never flush with cash um, anyhow, and that was probably more to some pretty poor uh, financial disciplines in the organisation that we've had to tidy up as we have. So I was talking about earlier with, you know, audit risk committees and a lot more savvy accounting than we've had before. And that's what you get when you get independent eyes on operations yeah. and the skill set. Like the, the skills of some of our directors is just outstanding, their commitment. You know, we're all volunteers. We, we don't get paid. So none of us are, are taking a, a whack um, out of the coffers at all. All the money goes back to the nations and we run a very lean organisation as it is. So we need to build that up, but not so far as expense-wise. The, the percentage that we spend on the administration of the IRL always has to be very low. Yep. So the money's going where it needs to. So uh, absolutely, things are tight, um, but you know, we're uh, viable, we're you know still operating and all that sort of stuff and we can do um, for a number of years, but certainly the cash we would have had available that was forecast to come in uh, has been delayed. So therefore, those investments until we can bring in some other commercial revenue will be delayed. But that's what our calendar that's um, in development now under some a little bit of adjustment yep. in, a, in a commercial prospectus that we're putting together that we've been working on for a while. That's what that, that'll be crucial in the next 12 months to um, help ready us for the benefits post-22, if that makes sense. So um, the next 12 months will be dominated by you know, what will be the World Cup, but we need to get our house in order um, so we can reap those benefits with even improved uh, financial management, income flows, commercialisation of a number of IP assets that the IRL has, etc. And, and that's the focus of um, the next six months for sure. Let's talk about the calendar that you mentioned because as International Rugby League fans, we've been hearing about an eight-year, ten-year calendar for as long as I can remember. Yeah. Um, you know, this postponement does affect, you know, regional events like MEA, America's Championship, Euro and Oceania, which were all meant to take place next year. An Emerging yep. Nations World Cup was meant to take place next year. Uh, there's a Nines World Cup that's meant to take place in 2023. Yep. How are all of these competitions or uh, affected now that this has been postponed? Does it simply go a year? Does everything go a year back or how how's that going to no. work? No, so just to to make this clear, so 21 is now just 22 in the World Cup cycle. So that reduces it to a three-year cycle till we get to World Cup. Uh, that's the 13-side World Cup in 25. Uh, you're right, 23 is the nines. Um, that will continue. So the timing of the European champions, for example, I've already had conversation with our um, board representatives from the uh, ERL, European Rugby League, and they're looking at all those contingencies now about the timeframes. Uh, the same conversations will have will be had with MEA um, and making sure that all our regional uh, product goes ahead. The challenge for us in the next uh, probably six six to eight weeks is um, making sure we understand and nations uh, clearly understand what their pathway to 25 is by way of qualification. Yep. That's the thing that we've really got to get right. And part of the calendar design um, is to make sure that there is that clarity that Vanuatu, just as an example, 
knows what they have to do to get to a World Cup ultimately so they can see where their pathway is, not just uh, from a, a 13 side, um, side but also the nines. So the calendar takes in and, and raises that those events that they may have bilateral and or um, within a championship can also have a dual qualification role yep. um, into our major tournaments. Um, so that's that's the trick of the of trying to get that balance in the world in the uh, calendar IRL calendar. So it's it's been a long body of work. I've done that work largely with uh, uh, Lachlan Smith, formerly of the NRL. Yep, he's uh, just left recently. He's been outstanding. Done a ton of consultation with the uh, confederations and the the board and the and the member nations. Obviously, got strong support uh, for what what we've built. Um, so it's it's in a framework um, status now. Yep. So we understand what that needs to be adjusted now because of the postponement, and that'll happen in the next fortnight. We'll go back to the nations to consult to make sure they're happy with that. We'll have some answers around qualifications, and then we can populate that framework. And you know, I, I was originally hoping for uh, a July sort of a launch release of our calendar. Yep given the um, the World Cup took priority in the last couple of months to get everything happening for that because that is our priority um, at the moment. That's just been sort of slipped a little bit. So, you know, by the end of the year, I'd like to have the calendar out and it'll be massive, as you say, because it's been a, you know, one of those, it's like a mirage <laughs> in the yeah. desert, isn't it? Like you, you can see it, nearly touch it, taste it, and it's been so close so many times and it's been the Achilles heel for the organisation for so long and, and it's why the uh, organisation hasn't been able to give surety to any sponsors or commercial partners um, any confidence in our product that it's not just these hastily put together events at the end of a season that are thrown together, that they have meaning, that they're competitive, that they just don't happen every single year, that they become boring, that there's um, some... Um, you're not going to have a kangaroo tour every year, for example. You have that every four years because it adds meaning to it, Um, extra meaning and aligns tours. And and then I want to get the Pacific Islands into Europe um, Mm. as part of the plan and and vice versa, just give some other nations some opportunities to compete in different tournaments that they haven't had before, just to uh, give it a, a bit of a morale boost, I suppose, as well. Um, greater access to to competition, so yeah, that's that's the plan, and, and hopefully we can pull it off because like uh, it's been so close before and hasn't quite got over the line. We're all back in you, mate, and we're looking forward to hearing that. We will, I can promise you that uh, chasing kangaroos and the kangaroo chasers will make as much noise about it as possible once it does come out because we've been waiting a long, long time for it, um, mate. And it's, it's important too that. Yeah. Yeah, there's the international stuff, but there's the international stuff that happens domestically as well. Yeah. So we need a far better connectivity of what occurs, you know, whether it's at the community level uh, as well and better acknowledgement of that, how to promote that, how, how to celebrate that as well. So, you know, we've got a lot of work to do and this is not going to be done all quickly. There'll be an evolution of it as well. The calendar will be out, but then it'll be open to be enhanced and, and added to as well. So that's in, that's an important part of our thinking. Great stuff. Let's talk back to the World Cup now. Let's talk about some positives 
uh, and negatives of the postponement as well. So a few things. Firstly, football World Cup or soccer World Cup is happening next year and there is potential for a little bit of overlap there and potentially, you know, some issues around BBC coverage and, and gr- access to grounds because of the Premier League, I understand their schedule sort of is changing so they can fit in for their World Cup. How does that affect our World Cup now being postponed to next year? Yeah, that's the work Don Dutton's doing immediately. Yep. Like, that's the stuff he needs to get out and then get the schedule recirculated pretty quickly. Uh, he's reasonably confident that, sure, there'll be some disruptions, but there's also some opportunities there. Yep. So yeah, I'm sure there will be a bit of disruption or some dislocation of what the previous arrangements were. But um, it's not insurmountable, and he's he's really positive about it as well. So, um, I, you know, I've got absolute trust in John Dutton. He's an outstanding administrator, a hell of a good guy, and um, he's just so passionate about this World Cup that I've got every confidence he'll get it sorted. I've had the pleasure of speaking and interviewing John three times, I think, on this podcast, and I did want to ask you, where does he rank in terms of an administrator for you? Oh, he's look. He's top of the class. See, he's he's really well respected. When we did the uh, hook up with the NRL CEOs, John and I, yeah, you, you you just saw it. The the admiration he has from the the club CEOs is enormous. Uh, I know you know Andrew Abdo's been pillared and along with Peter Valandis, and I'd like to talk about that in a second. And I know they genuinely respect him, so he's universally respected and. He's got my absolute respect as well. So he's top of the class, without question. Let's talk about that now, Peter Valandis and, and, and Abdo and even some of the others. So there were some comments coming from this side of the pond about uh, International Rugby League being better off if it was run by the NRL. And I guess these are some of the comments that have angered a lot of International Rugby League fans. Do you want to touch on that at all? Oh, look, I just totally reject it. I, I, I think they're ignorant. Um, calls, um, arrogant uh, is another word for it. Uh, the ARL slash NRL are absolutely critical um, to the future of the international game. There's no question about that. The, the growth of um, the Pacific competitiveness has largely been on the investment uh, of the, the ARL. Sure, there's some... Um, obvious benefits as to why they would do that. It yep. creates a great pathway of players and a talent pool into their own competition. But there's there, there are people in the ARL who are genuinely passionate about international rugby league. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing I wanted to refer to about Peter Volandis and, and Andrew Abdo is it's, um, it's, it's a way of the modern world is that we, we, we forget quickly but, you know, just 12 months ago-ish, and I was there, I was part of Project Apollo, so I saw it firsthand. Yep. So I think I can offer some pretty uh, clear insights um, is that potentially without them, you know, what would have happened to rugby league uh, for all of us could have been devastating. Well, without Peter's leadership and tenacity, you know, which isn't everybody's cup of tea, um, his management style, whatever, but without that at the time, we may not have anything near the resemblance of the game that we have. It, it may well have fallen over. Mm. And I think we're too quick to forget that contribution. And Andrew Abdo played an enormous role in that. Wayne Pierce, who's one of our board members on the IRL, he was instrumental. He and Peter Volandis were the, 
number one, number two that saved the game, without question. Led the world. Let's not forget, led the world, the yep. NBA and everyone else that shut down. Um, so they led the world in sports administration to helping their sports survive a pandemic. So they've got, they've got some credit in the bank uh, from where I sit. Do I agree with the decision they make or do I like it? No, but but I can understand it too from, from both sides. And, you know, some people out there will say oh, I'm an apologist for them. I'm not. You know, they they gave me a slap up in the in the Australian media <laughs> because I disagreed with their yep. – some, some um, hack journo, you know, said – been uh, having a bit of political history needs to be out of the game because I, I don't have a clue and I should listen to my master. <laughs> my, master yeah. my masters are the uh, 60-odd nations that are full affiliate or observer members. That, they're my masters. Uh, I'm in an unpaid gig. The ARL are one of those members. New Zealand Rugby League are one of those members. They're very important members because of their size and, and what they've contributed. The Pacific tests that you know really helped Tonga and and uh, Samoa rise, and, and even conversely by um, PNG and Fiji, that was, you know, really the work that the ARL, the NRL, really did with uh, the federal government in Australia through yeah. the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. It, it only was taken over by Asia-Pacific, you know, just before the pandemic, essentially. So the poor old Asia-Pacific Confederation haven't had a fair crack yeah. at um, trying to build that up uh, other than the one edition of the Oceania Pal. So, you know, I, we can't forget that contribution, but I guess what frustrates people, and I hear it often, is that they they want more out of the ARL, but I think there's a break in the link about what's wanted. And I think uh, Robert Bergen expressed it really well in something I saw him write or I heard him say, was that it's not necessarily like a cash splash or whatever. It's actually just access to yep. sharing resources for yep. the betterment of the game more broadly, whereas the NRL rightly operates as a commercial entity, so it protects every bit of IP and, and, and that sort of stuff. So we just need to, and this is where the relationships are critical, uh, just get a better buy-in from um, Australia to use their massive build-up of resources to help just give greater access to our international members to build the game up, which ultimately I would advocate is in their interest because you imagine a player from Africa, yeah, Malaysia, you know, you can say anywhere, Jamaica. Well, there's already one because Dom Young, yeah. Young's playing yeah. for the Knights from Jamaica. We've got a lot of heritage players uh, obviously in the NRL, but you imagine other than the Fijians and the Pacific Islanders and Papua New Guineans like Justin Olam and that, uh, you imagine getting players in the NRL from Japan, yeah, um, India, Serbia, Russia, and turning them into superstars. What impact would that have for the NRL, and what impact would that have for international rugby league? Exactly, it's not only uh, player pathways. Fantastic Brazilian yeah. players that come yeah. from Brazil that's yeah. spotted in these tournaments gets into the pathway systems of the NRL. That's where the magic can happen, and we can turn them into global superstars, and that then elevates us into the you know, higher opportunities, broadcasting rights and government support across other nations and stuff as well. So I think that's there's mutual interest there and I just think we need to make that clearer or better understood in the ARL's administration because I know that they've got the passion to support the game. I know Peter said to me personally um, when he came into the chair role, 
that you know he had, has an absolute passion for the international game. But the man's been under enormous pressure for two years, yeah, uh, just to keep a, a professional competition of a massive magnitude. You know, it's a couple of billion dollar enterprise just to keep it afloat. So I think you know we can be quick to jump down his throat, but I think we need to cut them some slack as well, yeah, and just build on um, on those relationships, acknowledge. Um, what they've done, but also where we think they can help us where they're not. And uh, through proper, smart uh, relationship management, we can get a far better outcome for everyone internationally. Yeah, I guess it's, look, we've got the pandemic to blame, but you'd like I'd like to think that even the NRL understands commercially what impact International Rugby League has for, for them, whether it be having more international games, you hear talk about, an, uh, you know, a representative window, um, they want Oceania Cups and Fijians and Papua New Guineans playing the game, but I'm sure they want, you know, the NRL would love to see an American player in the NRL so that they can sell jerseys in probably the biggest sporting market in the world. So there is potential yeah. there, and it just seems, for me, the balance between long-season state of origin and then, you know, squeezing in internationals, it seems to be an afterthought at the moment, and it needs it needs more respect and more time, and I think it can grow. I, I, I said many times that, you know, um, Tonga New Zealand or even Tonga Samoa could be commercially as big and as exciting as a state of origin. You know, we've, we've mentioned that England and France could be huge on that side of the world as well. But how, how do we, I guess, or how does International Rugby League get taken more seriously for, by, in particular, the NRL and NRL fans in the future? Yeah, look, it's off the, it's off the um, calendar. Uh, and when I first spoke to NRL CEOs a good 18 months ago, and I've been in constant communication with a number of them, the, the, the rea- this is a reality for the elite level of internationals. Um, they own the asset, being the players. So they, they're the ones that pay them, insure them, manage them, look after their welfare and all that sort of stuff. So as a sport, we're, we're essentially borrowing an asset they make massive investments into mm. um, for the good of the broader game. And, you know, the, the reality for the clubs, and I made this point, is that they didn't invent Latrell Mitchell. Latrell Mitchell <laughs> yep. grew, up, grew up in, you know, volunteered, organised and run junior league in Taree. And then he made his way through a pathway system and stuff like that. And then he gets to the Roosters at a fairly young age. I think he was about 16. Mm. And then their professionalism and their elite pathways get in and, and you know, help him become the player he is. And, and that's true with, you know, 95% of the players, I'd imagine. Yeah. There's a few late bloomers that do it themselves through Country Rugby League or Queensland Cup or New South Wales Cup, etc. But a lot of them are invested in very young, but they all start somewhere. And, and they all start very similar to how they start in Brazil or in Serbia or in Vanuatu or wherever domestically in a volunteer rugby league competition, uh, junior rugby league. Um, I don't know who gets paid at that level. I'm not sure if anyone does. But nope. <laughs> so, so the clubs do benefit from other people's investment, time, money, and all that, and they absolutely do their investment. So I guess for them, looking at it from in a, from a commercial lens, is they've got to see a value proposition from what we're doing at international level. They will support it, and, and I've had this commitment from every one of them. They will support it if it has a value proposition. They can see that 
the risk of them playing and being injured and interrupting their investment and their club uh, commitments and competition or whatever it may be. Kieran Foran, when he's at the Bulldogs, I think is the uh, big example, injured in a test match and yeah. out for three quarters of a season type thing. That, that's for a club, you know, that's a, a big impact on them commercially, sponsors and cost and all that sort of stuff too. But if they can see value in what we've got to offer in an international calendar and it's not Mickey Mouse stuff or it's just not put together at the last minute or there's not the proper, you know, elite support stuff around, you know, uh, rehabilitation, uh, recovery, preparation, training, all those sorts of standards are at a high level, then their confidence grows and they will and they do support it. And, you know, I think it was the greatest example, I think Josh Papalee mm. talked about this himself. He had a pretty ordinary World Cup, <coughs> excuse me, I think it was um, 13 uh, when he played for Samoa. Yep. And um, he went there and just basically went on, you know, on a little holiday, put on a ton of weight, came back terribly conditioned, had a really lousy season for his club side. And, and um, you know, he, he feels terrible about that and wants to repay Samoa and, He's obviously gone on and learned from that and had a wonderful career. But um, that's the things that we've got to help give the clubs the confidence in to release their players and be more actively involved. And, and the ARL is in that same vein, I guess, as, as is the New Zealand rugby league. I guess you're right. What is a trade-off? What's in it for the NRL, ARLC? What's in it for the clubs? And I'm sure everyone can. there is a scenario where everyone can win and it's not going to be perfect, but... No, I yeah, think I'm not sure it's actually what's in it for them. It's it's to yeah. ensure it doesn't cost them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I I think they they already contribute heaps, and it's not about getting them to actually invest more. It's just about to minimise their risk as well. Yep. Uh, we've got to get that balance right, and you know, and the passion from the players. And I said this during the commentary. I think some of the uh, administrators underestimated the passion the players have for playing in the National Rugby League. There's a real hunger and a yearning there to do it. Um, so it's got to be the right amount, the right place, the right conditions, the right circumstances in the right way. And I think what we can do, the potential is unlimited. Without doubt, you know, there's no greater honour than representing your nation, your nation of her- heritage or birth. And um, it could be something that happens at the Olympics in 10 years' time. Talk to me about... Um, Rugby League Nines potentially at the 2032 Olympic Games in Brisbane? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a, an absolute must to have a, as a target um, as part of our strategy. The, there's been a lot of groundwork uh, that's been done for a number of years um, to be IAC recognised. Yep. Um, you've got to do a ton of work as a sporting federation to get accredited, essentially. And uh, the management have done a really good job in this, this regard and I guess it's been a bit of a priority or a focus more than some of the other elements of the operations, the IRL, um, before the last 18 months, uh, which is fine, but um, you've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. So that that will be a game changer for us uh, internationally, and I'm pretty confident we'd have more nations and because we've got the women's game growing at such a rapid rate uh, that we would appeal to the gender equity um, goals mm. of the IAC have at the moment yep. are the amount of nations that uh, would compete in that sort of a tournament. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's a re- it's a reality that uh, it could happen. But you know, we've still got a lot of work to do. Uh, there's some pathway opportunities that are part of the calendar that we're looking at through the Pacific Games. Um, there's some 
regional tournaments, also in the hemisphere, the American games and things like that, North American games, that we need to tap into as well to get some of that credibility and get some nations playing in those formats uh, that can help be a clearer pathway into the Olympics participation. It's why that, you know, World Cup 2023, I mean, 20, 2019 was really exciting and I think it was a good success. I mean, the crowds could have been bigger, but it really, for as a product, it blew a lot of people away. And it makes 2023 important and everything that happens after that. And I might talk to you off air about 2023. There's a little, we'll, I'll, I'll save that for later for the fans, but um, I might talk to you off air, mate. But certainly exciting. And um, yeah, the Olympic Games in Brisbane, Rugby League Nines, um, we've got 10 years. And, and who, who knows what our game on a world scale could look like by then. Um, and I'm certainly excited yeah, well, by some of the things you've done. Yeah. probably made it. Yeah. yeah, if we're doing it properly, it uh, it should be that should be the our pinnacle of you know really going into A grade or sort of remaining where we are, and that, I'm not satisfied with that. So that's certainly the the goal and the pursuit. We can be better. We've just got to do better, mate. You've I want to thank you for your time. You've been outstanding in answering these questions. You make you made things clearer for for I'm sure a lot of the listeners. Certainly for me. And I guess, um, I guess finally, you know, you're speaking to right now probably the most passionate international rugby league fans in the world. Our audience is, you know, they're the ones that understand everywhere that the game is played. They've been sort of following along with interest on this whole World Cup scenario. What message do you have for the kangaroo chasers, for the international fans of rugby league uh, for the future? Yeah, well, just the big thank you first and foremost because without the fans, um, we don't have a game. Is the reality, and it's a good and a bad thing, or it's it's a it's a great thing and, and a helpful thing, but also a hurtful thing. Our passion for the game at times uh, that we have a, a tenacity to tear ourselves down at times when this is a time we need to unite and come together to make international rugby league what it can be. So uh, the frustration is warranted. Uh, from what I've seen in the last 18 months, um, for many years, that why you know why we haven't done what and realised the potential, done what we could have done. The, the, the frustration is justified, um, but I think, um, and I just ask all the fans out there to to be give us a little bit more time, um, given the remarkable circumstances we are, to to realise their passion and dreams by giving them what they need, and that's some more clarity. Um, around the calendar and, and all those things that have been long promised so we can realise our potential. But just know that it's been done smartly uh, with a strategy behind it. It's just not been plucked out of the air and and the decisions have been made for the greater good of the game and we have to unite to go forward to allow International Rugby League to be all it can be. And um, I've got great hope and uh, we've hit a bump in the road, but there's been plenty of bumps in the road in Rugby League's long history. And we've overcome and prevailed before, and I'm very confident we'll do that in the future. And it'll only be on the back of the passionate fans. So I thank them for their commitment and give them an undertaking. And I'm always available, and we'll be communicating uh, far more often and in far more transparent manner than probably has ever happened before. And and we owe that to the to the fans, and we owe that to the game. I feel like, mate, listening to you, we're in a good position, or we're we're going to be in a better position, and. It's funny, once the World Cup was postponed, I understood the ramifications of that and what a difficult decision it was and 
probably obviously not the best decision, but once that final call was made, I sort of felt a little bit like a weight off my shoulders. I just felt like, okay, 12 months, we've got a year, this is going to be an awesome year. You know, we're leading up to a World Cup again. And um, something about that, I'm, I'm excited. You've, uh, you've, you've renewed my hope in this last hour of discussion as well, Troy. So, mate, I want to thank you and uh, for your time. And, mate, thanks for chasing kangaroos with me tonight. No, you're welcome, mate. Congratulations on your podcast and thanks for all you're doing for the game. And uh, I've got a great team at the IRL board and we're all very dedicated and committed. And uh, thanks again, mate. Congratulations on your podcast. It's wonderful. Chasing Kangaroos is brought to you by Matt Haynes Sport. We are mixed and produced by Paul Murchison. Our theme music was written and recorded by Ash Barco and Ricky Cancino. The podcast is hosted by me, Michael Carboni, and The Biggest Tiger. Views are our own. Mm-hmm.